You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Thank you all very much. Praise God. You can be seated. And um, I think I'm going to speak from John chapter 4 today, so you can turn there, but I'm going to look at a couple of Psalms ahead of time. I... um, change of plans. I was certain every time I thought about and prayed about coming here, I had one text of scripture on my mind. And during worship, it seemed to be completely overshadowed and uh, in favor of this other text. I believe it pleases the Lord to speak into this other issue of worship. I'd like to do that a little bit for you this morning in John chapter 4. Um, I'd like to introduce my son, Evan, who's sitting on the front row, and he's traveling with me this weekend. So Evan is right here in the front, white shirt. Um, My wife and I have five children. One of them is a son, so Evan is the only son. Though now we have a son-in-law who's a son and two grandsons who are grandsons. So when... um, When I was here with the Hubings and joining you guys a year and a half ago, two things uh, uh, struck me about your church, actually many things. You guys have a number of strengths and wonderful virtues here. You're a very healthy community of faith and I appreciate that and I honor that and all of those different positives that you guys have really refreshed me. Um, But I was particularly refreshed in your presence, and I said this last time, um, for, for two things. One was your worship. Just being among you in your worship as you worshiped was refreshing to me because your worship was so authentic and you sought real relationship with God in purity and, and I could just sense that in your, your voices and in the atmosphere and it refreshed me. And I had mostly forgotten about that until worship started again this morning. And then that exact same feeling and sense came to me and I thought, oh, that's right. And it's just refreshing to be among that. So I appreciate that and I commend you for that. And I felt as I was pondering that during worship that God would have me speak into that. It's it's a strength that you have. You have cultivated a spirit of worship and it's refreshing, it has an effect on other people around you, but I also believe the Lord would have you go deeper. And so we're going to speak into that today. It's a strength, like Paul told the Thessalonians, you don't need anyone to teach you how to love one another because God taught you how to love one another, but love one another all the more. It's like this is a strength that you have, but you have to go farther. And so I feel that's what the Lord is indicating this morning by his spirit, that you have made space for the Lord to move freely. You have cultivated a relationship with him that I would call worship, and he's calling you to go deeper. Worship is not just what we do when we gather on a Sunday morning and the band is struck up. Worship goes deeper than that and it goes beyond that. If we cannot worship without the external stimuli, then we cannot worship. Worship is a state of the heart. Worship is hunger and thirst. 
with such depth that it pushes everything else out of the way to find the one place of eating and drinking that satisfies ultimately. That is worship. And that's a state of the heart that's done in your, your bedroom when you're at the side of your bed going through a horrifically hard time and you're saying, God, I just, I have to have your presence. More than I need this issue solved, I just wanna know you. I wanna be a branch abiding in the vine because that's where the fruit comes from. There's just, let's say it's a rare virtue for people of a church and really in a city to be people who are first and foremost a people of worship, who seek God deeply and just wanna know him and don't care about anything else. That's actually a rarity. So since you've chosen that authentic place of worship at the feet of Jesus, since that is a virtue that God has granted you, let's go forward and go all the more. I hope I can help a little bit with that. A lot of what I'm about to share with you today, I'm sharing with myself. You all are welcome to listen in. So we're going to John 4, if, but I'm not gonna go there first. I'm going to go on a detour and set ourselves up in the Psalms. I mean, how can we not do that? At least mention the Psalms a little bit. Should I pray before I read the Bible? What's the legal way of doing this? <laughs> Forgive, the, I, I can be a little bit scattered. I'll try not to do that, but I, before I forget, where are you from in Kansas? Is it Cade or Caden? That didn't help me. What did he say? With an N on the end? See, I need, okay. So you can, where? Manhattan, Kansas. Yeah, cool. How many of you have ever heard of Manhattan, Kansas? Well, well you're, I guess this is Iowa, sorry, okay. My wife went to school in Manhattan, Kansas. Interesting, anyway, and we have family in Northern Thailand as well. What city are you going in Northern Thailand? Will that be a base or are you just starting there? Would you all excuse us for a moment? I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you know the city? Okay, I, I don't know that one. Community church, there you have it. Okay, I was married in community church. Oh, you know Isaac. Okay, so Isaac's my nephew. There you have it. So there you go. <laughs> Bonding moments. So, I, yeah, so... That's his, that's why I was thinking Northern Thailand to Burma, that's Isaac's thing, isn't it? So you'll be working with Isaac? Not to, but you know him. You probably will cross paths. And I have other friends that do church planting there anyway, okay. We'll make this relevant somehow. Amen. It's a, it's a big kingdom, but a small world and there's family in there. Um, my father-in-law pastored community church. Yeah, you know all that. Okay, so we, we need to move on. So I, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to pray and then we'll look at a couple of Psalms and you don't have to turn to them unless you want to. But um, that's my plan. Abba, Father in heaven, you are awesome. You are indescribable. You are from everlasting to everlasting. You are God and there is no other. You are exclusive in your eternity, in your eternality, in your beauty, and yet your heart is a heart of humility and goodness and kindness. How could it be that we've been called to know you in your son and through your son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit? You are wonderful in every way. 
And it is our greatest delight to know you and to experience you and to walk with you. And you are worth it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth the pursuit. Jesus is worth staying loyal and keeping our hearts tender and soft before you, even during extraordinarily difficult times. Jesus is worth every good confession, even when the whole world is against us. Jesus is worth traveling across the world to give our lives uh, to you and to a, a foreign people, if that is what you're calling us to do. Jesus is worth it, Lord. This is not mechanical for us. It's, it's not business. It's not um, religion. It's a wonderful relationship with you. It's life itself to know you, to be filled with your spirit, and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ every day. So I pray, Father God, in Jesus' name with all of my heart, I ask you to do a work in our hearts, every single one of us. Do a work in our hearts as we humble ourselves before you. Operate and be active by your spirit in our hearts, in the center of who we are, in our personalities, deep in our desires, deep in the secret places of our hearts, God. Be active in our hearts, in the centers of who we are. And in that place, purify and wash and cleanse and give us a revelation of yourself in your son Jesus by your spirit. A revelation that awakens us to a whole new sphere, an entirely new level of being in God as little tiny branches that abide in a big, healthy, giant vine. We're small and thin and fragile in ourselves, but in you we are powerful, fruit-bearing branches as long as we abide. Give us a revelation of you that causes us deep in our instincts, in our most basic desires and hungers and thirsts of heart, to abide and to abide and to abide deeply as human beings, as disciples of Jesus. Cause us to abide that there might be much fruit growing organically from our lives, Lord. That just as Jesus instructed us, that our Father might be glorified. Jesus is King. He is Lord. He is crucified and risen and ascended on high. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name we pray, amen and amen. amen. So we referred this morning to Psalm 95 twice, once in, uh, no, actually that was Psalm 100. So it was just once, sorry. What a great, what a great start. Uh, just chalk all that up to Blabstone, I guess, sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, that wasn't, that wasn't a poke at you, it's a poke at myself. Drew did, um, Drew did refer to Psalm 95 this morning. Um, by the way, the other thing was just your, your, the other thing that struck me and refreshed me was the integrity and the authenticity of just the way you all conduct your lives, especially the leaders that I was interacting with. And it was just very refreshing to be among you last time and to know you. I was encouraged by that in my own heart and I am encouraged again. 
So anyway, there you have it, some, some good press. Psalm 95 is a worship psalm. It's a call to worship. It's a celebratory worship service script, so to speak. And it begins by saying, come, let's sing for joy to Yahweh. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout joyfully to him with psalms. Because Yahweh's a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his because it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So I'm pausing for a moment. I just want to say, here's a call to worship. The psalmist is playing the role of a worship leader. Really, it's the Holy Spirit speaking prophetically. But he's calling people to worship out of a root system that's the knowledge of God, that he's truly great, he's truly good, and he deserves worship. Worship is fundamental to human life. It's what it means to be human, to worship the true God. And so it's appropriate that there are calls to worship in our hearts, in the scriptures, in our lives, in our church meetings, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we have happening here. The psalmist who's saying these things knows God personally. He's experienced God in prayer, in creation, in, in acts of deliverance. He has poured over the scriptures, as we will read in a moment, and he's called on God, praying the scriptures previously, and, and that helps fuel this call to worship. So these are the ways that he has connection with God by the Holy Spirit and the word of God. And he's calling people to worship based on fundamental truths in the Old Testament that makes God exclusively God. He's sovereign, he's called king, he's the creator. There's no other gods that can make these claims. There are no other gods at all, in fact, which is how they can make none of these claims. But there are false gods. And, and in this environment where there are so many gods vying for attention, the psalmist says, come worship the true God. He's the only king. He's the one who made everything. And he's good. And so he's a source and a reason for joy. In verse six, the worship service goes typically into the slower movements, the slower songs, the more intimate moments after we have come in with joy to his courts with praise. Uh, there's that time of more intimacy and more reverence as things get lower to the ground in verse six. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before Yahweh, our maker, because he is God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's what was quoted in your song, but also in Psalm 100. Anyway, uh, we're his people. We're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And so that is a statement of great intimacy. So there's connection with God going on during the worship meeting at this point. And then comes the second or the third part of verse seven. Today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. It's an interesting kind of interruption to an atmosphere of festival and joy, laughter and shouting that then turns to intimacy and reverence and just that sense of God being among us and being pleased with his people as they're rejoicing, he's rejoicing in them, as they're kneeling in intimacy saying, we're your sheep. You take care of us, but we pledge ourselves to you. You are ours and we are yours. 
And in that moment of tenderness and intimacy, rarefied air, the sweet presence of God, a prophecy comes forth. Be warned, don't harden your hearts. It's interesting that such a word would come after such genuine two-way joy, both God and us, and then after such deep and authentic two-way intimacy, both God and the people worshiping, that is, we ourselves. In the midst of that comes a warning. It's not necessarily in a harsh tone. This is exactly what Brother Drew mentioned in his very, very gentle and friendly and pastoral manner. So the spirit of love anoints even words that come with some warning, that are laced with some admonishment. And it seems appropriate to repeat that little phrase in the midst of an, of, of, of an authentic church of worship, in the midst of your genuine joy and your genuine intimacy, let us also take heed to a prophetic word that would say, don't harden your hearts. Keep your heart fully open to the Lord, not just during church, but as a man or a woman, as a boy or a girl. Keep your heart tender toward the Lord. The psalm goes on. <clears throat> in verse eight, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. Man, now you see his scripture knowledge here. He's bringing those stories of the Exodus and Numbers into a prophetic sermon right, at, right after worship, just kind of like our services do. But there's an urgency here because in that context, you know, the group is, is con, com, commended by God for, for its joy and its intimacy. But there are still those areas where hearts are not quite in alignment with what was confessed during worship. Now, I'm not assuming that's exactly what's happening in this room, but I am saying that I believe the Spirit is uttering this word to be cautious with the way we are stewarding our hearts. Our hearts are, one author says, uh, our hearts are factories of desires, often a challenge to manage and maintain. But the psalmist prayed, unite my heart that I might fear you. That's my prayer for myself in, in this season of my life. It's like, Lord, capture every, how do you say, every chamber of my heart, every source of, of desire, every source that's called hunger, every area that is called thirst, every desire and, and movement of my heart to stray and just seek ultimate satisfaction. Help me, Holy Spirit, to find all of that satisfaction in the Father and in the Son and in you, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. I believe that is the calling this morning. It's prophetic and it is foundational for a community. Our love for God, our depth of God is defined by our worship, but worship is not what we express merely on Sunday morning. It is a state of heart. Worship is the soul's quest to quench its thirst 
for God. That is worship. Worship is the way we seek to satisfy our hearts. We are always worshiping. We may not always be worshiping God, which is where Jesus calls us. Those hunger and thirsts in your heart that you find vying for all these different sources of pleasure or satisfaction in this life, that's where worship comes from. Our hearts have desires. They're constantly churning to find satisfaction, to find meaning, to find significance, to find a place of rest, of identity. And Jesus says, now you let that hunger and thirst go toward God and you'll find out who you are because you find it out first who you are when you find out first who God is. But in this psalm, in, in, a, in a group that the psalmist was addressing, he says, you've been worshiping and there's been genuine joy and real intimacy, but the spirit sees areas that are straying away, finding ultimate satisfaction in other areas, sources of pleasure and meaning. He says, be warned and be careful that that doesn't turn your heart hard. That's the warning we have today, I believe. And it's like the day of, in the wilderness. How many times our hearts get exposed during difficult times? That's when the grape juice comes out, right? When the grape gets squeezed. Your fathers tested me in verse nine. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said there are people who err in their heart. They don't know my ways. Therefore, I sworn my anger. Truly, they shall not enter my rest. Of course, rest referred to the destiny of Israel coming into the promised land. An entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, got left behind. An entire generation had to wait in the wilderness to pass away so that the next generation can be brought into the place of rest. It was a place of rest because it was a geographic uh, destiny but it also was an identity destiny. So Israel could be its own nation and its own land and serve God and testify to God from its nation to the other nations. It would be at peace in that place after the wars at the beginning and after the wars of David, the, the king of peace who didn't work out long-term, but he was named king of peace, the uh, Shalomo Solomon, his name means peace because Israel had found rest from its enemies and they were in fifth gear in terms of their identity and embodying the testimony of Yahweh in the world. So they were at peace. They had entered into rest. Likewise, each one of us is meant to come fully into a relationship with God, find our satisfaction fully in him, and thereby we find our identity and our purpose, no matter what it is. Whether we're called all the way across the world into Southeast Asia, or we're called to be a light where we work and have a neighborhood, or we're called to a life of deep intercession as our main thing, or we're prophetic, or we exhort. We find our ultimate meaning not in these areas of ministry, but in God himself. And then organically flows the fruit we bear from that place of simply knowing God and having enough right there. Worship is not merely what we do when the band is struck up and the songs are being sung. Worship is the heart 
finding satisfaction in God to where our entire spirit, soul, and body, and even our relationships are at peace because we are satisfied with God. It sounds very idealistic, doesn't it? It's like, what kind of superhuman spirit man, spirit woman is like, I'm just so satisfied with God, I'm perfect. It's a constant fight to be diligent to enter his rest. It's a constant struggle in this world. It's a privilege to be on the battlefield and to have the resources of God at our disposal to go when it's easy and when it's difficult, right? And of course, we have one another to help us along the way. I mean, it's, these things don't come easy. Nothing worth having does, even though it, we're given a free gift uh, when, just by believing. But to cultivate that, man, that takes discipline and energy and humility. And you know what else it takes? It takes humility and humility and humility and humility. And that's like one of the main things I'm tempted to preach on that. But I'm gonna go back to John four and let's see what Jesus says about this same issue. To me, John four is the singular foundational passage on what worship is. And there's lots of material in the Bible that tells us how worship incorporates so many genres and vehicles of expression. It incorporates musical instruments, things you beat, things you strum, things, what else is left? You blow in through, <laughs> there's cymbals, there's guitars or lyres. I like saying guitar rather than lyre. Lyre sounds just not, very true, but L-Y-R-E. There's harps, and there's shouting, and there's singing, and there's weeping. Lamenting is, a, is an expression of worship, right? Ignoring the pain never helped anyone. We bring it to the Lord, that's what we do. Come on, trying to look spiritual to other people is not worship. That's fake. That's, that's called hypocrisy. Um, being real, and pouring our hearts out before the Lord, that's worship. If everything is done in reference to God and leaning on God, then that's, that's worship. We could be in great pain, we could be suffering, we could be mourning a very real loss, but to have the courage to invite the Lord into that, especially when he didn't act the way we thought he was going to in that situation, so that we can say, look, even in that relationship or that loss or this circumstance that did not work out the way I thought you were going to work it out, Lord, I still don't find my ultimate satisfaction in that circumstance. I find it in you. So even if you move differently than I expected you to, I still seek you because you yourself, you are my satisfaction. Uh, to me, that's worship, and it takes courage to worship authentically to have our hearts that are hungry, just like I said, a factory of desires, to, 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 um, to maneuver our hearts and push them into God. That takes courage. It takes um, loyalty. It takes humility to wait on the Lord. And that is what worship is. So the Bible incorporates all these different vehicles of expression are kneeling, are lamenting, like I said, we shout, we laugh. Sometimes laughter is, is, is an expression of worship. I've, I've cracked up like I just heard a joke sometimes when I just get tickled by how God is good. And there's other times where that's just not appropriate. It's, it's a time of weeping and mourning, but to be done on, on the, the breast of the Lord is worship. 
But worship is not ultimately found in the things we say and do or in the drums we bang. It's not found first and foremost in even the worship service. It's it's found in the state of our heart and the pursuit of finding satisfaction in God himself. And that has to happen outside of church even more than in church, though it should also happen in church, so that we can bring the fruit of that satisfaction to the saints when we gather. And if we're not in that place, then the people who are can help those of us who aren't. Because that is also a part of what church is. No one is asking for us to fake it. God can see through that pretty easily for one thing. For another thing, that's not worship. I mean, sometimes we, we enter in in spite of the way we feel. That's a good thing. But I'm talking about trying to fake it. That's the opposite of worship. What did Jesus call worship that's, that's authentic to the Father? It's worship in spirit and in truth. You, you folks have spirit and truth in your worship. You have it. Other churches would want to catch up to you. But since you have that, let's go deeper because God is taking us deeper. In John 4, <clears throat> verse 1, I'll skip over a few parts here. The Lord knew the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though it wasn't Jesus himself. His disciples were the ones dunking people in water. Verse three, he left Judea, went away again into Samaria, uh, into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he's going north from Judah, which is south, to Samaria, which is in the north, and he, uh, to Galilee, which is in the north, excuse me, has to pass through Samaria. <laughs> I don't know if I, that came out right, but it doesn't matter. He came to a city of Samaria called Sukkar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So it's, it's important to John's narrative that we know that Jesus is tired. In Jesus' humanity, in his full humanity, he experienced the same human conditions that we do, not the internal sin, but everything else that was just a part of being human on this earth, hunger, thirst, being tired, feeling pain, suffering, uh, being tempted, simple pleasures. He was hungry, he sought for the, right, the, the figs on the fig tree, didn't find any, kind of took, took that tree out. I mean, he was hungry. It's like, you look good, but there ain't no fruit. So it just took the tree out. Another lesson for us, but he was human. I mean, that was God's will that he did that, but I'm saying he was hungry as well. And here he's thirsty. And we have to understand that thirst is a metaphor for worship. And satisfying thirst on water is a metaphor of worship. Right? Worship is the soul's quest to quench its thirst for God. Worship is the quest. We don't always find satisfaction in God. Then that would be idolatry, but it's still worship. True worship is actually to quench our thirst for God with God himself. And that's where Jesus is about to bring this little lady that he meets here at the, at the well. So there comes a woman to draw water. There's just such thick 
providence, providential irony in that statement. It's no mistake that this lady is here at this time and Jesus is meeting her here on his journey. His disciples had gone to get food. Did we already read that part? Not yet, but we're getting there, but he's alone. So praise God, God has our days in his hands. We can trust providence. Sometimes we're just in the right place at the right time. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. So he asks her for something first. I think that also is a good metaphor for worship where we're not seeking our own satisfaction in God, but we're giving him the pleasure of our worship that he wants. I may bring a lot of needs into church and I may bring a lot of needs into prayer, but Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. I mean, the first thing I wanna do is give him a drink. Let me give you what you are asking for. I'm here, and you know, there's times you're so pressed, you just start crying out to God. We're not under any religious bondage here, come on. But still, I don't want my life oriented that way where I'm just constantly thinking of my needs. That's why Jesus taught us to pray the way he did. Pray this way. Our Father who's in heaven, let your name be sanctified. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then we rightfully pray the prayers of our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our debts, etc., etc. So Jesus, unbeknownst to this little lady, This dear Samaritan woman, he's already teaching her how to worship. Give me something to drink. Oh, here we go. Verse eight, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Again, the metaphor is extended now to food. Food and drink, fundamental needs. Without them, we simply perish. So we hunger for them even when we're not dying. We have a desire for food and we have a desire for drink. But that desire, and it's a satisfying Desire when we have it and then meet it with food and drink that we like, isn't it? Sorry for those of you who are fasting. Find your feasting in the Lord. Easy for you to say. But there's a reason why God created us to need food and water and also to desire it emotionally. It's because it's a built-in metaphor for worship. We need God even more than we need food and drink. Jesus said that, and it's also in Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone. But man, good food, when you really, when you cook that steak just right and that bread is fresh and hot, fresh off a meal recently had, or you're really thirsty and it's your favorite thing to drink, it's not just that it meets the need, it's satisfying emotionally. Come on, eating is a very emotional exchange. It's very intimate. In the Bible days and still in cultures today, so really throughout history, eating is, 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 eating and drinking is connected to intimate fellowship. That's why there is a Lord's Supper. That's why it's not a snack of convenience. It's a supper. It takes effort and you eat together and you're feeding your bodies, you're meeting needs that are inside you. Without it, you, do, you die, and it tastes good, usually the way we fix suppers. Even simple suppers, we're usually not forcing ourselves to eat something we hate. May happen sometimes, but whatever. That's an intimate exchange. And, and the, the scripture says, lift that up to your need for God. That's your spirit for God. 
All that hunger and all that thirst ultimately is, is, is for him. Find the satisfaction there rather than in these other things. That's why even with eating, we fast. So that we deny that pleasure that's built in and it's not wrong, it's not idolatrous unless we're gluttonous or unless it becomes an idol. It's just normal life. But even there, God says, sever that for seasons, for times, so that your spirit can realize what real hunger is and what real satisfaction is. So the metaphor is extended, food and drink. It's built in. When you're hungry and you desire something that tastes good, you, you and I both know it affects us emotionally. And rightly so, we're made that way. But that's the way God is calling us to worship him, to feast on the abundance of your house, O Lord, and to drink deeply of the river of your delights. In your light, we see light. That's worship from Psalm 36, using again the eating and drinking metaphors. We drink deeply of your river. We eat of the abundance, the cornucopia of, of, of your house, the abundance, right? Did you guys see the, the Narnia movies when the one table was out there and she lit the candles and all that food was there and she invited them to eat? Like that's worship feasting on Yahweh God. Didn't Jesus say that in two chapters from where we are right now? Eat my flesh and drink my blood and you will have life in you. Worshiping me, connecting with me, pouring over the word of God, it's not religious exercise, it's feast. So let me give you a metaphor that is utterly offensive. Do you wanna eat? Jesus said, eat my flesh. That's the bread from the Old Testament, it's me. Drink my blood, that's true drink, he said. It was very offensive language to Jewish people of the day, but it was an apt metaphor for worship. So the disciples went away to find food, therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? This is an important point in the story. Because to, to interact socially with a Jew with a Samaritan is unclean for the Jew, plus this is a woman by herself, so Jesus is going beneath his social station um, as, a, as a Jew, but also as a man in that day and age, and also we find out this, this woman was immoral. So this is very risky. His behavior is immediately shocking. He's bursting through immediately with one question. He bursts through what carries ultimate meaning in her heart, national identity, social mores. What's the word? Social taboo. These had ultimate meaning, what Jews did, where they worshiped, what, Samaritan did, what Samaritans did, where they worshiped. Men and women, who you interact with, right? What does Jesus do with their complaints? Why is he eating with sinners? He was constantly breaking these barriers. Here he breaks barriers that are set up in this woman's heart that carry ultimate meaning to her. And he bursts right through. Ultimate meaning is not in national loyalty to, for Jews or Samaritans or anyone else. Might be important. There might be plenty of room for patriotism, but it is not ultimate. It's not the gospel. Abiding in the vine and bearing fruit for the gospel is ultimate meaning in the kingdom. 
And Jesus, when he wants a people of worship, he wants a people that find him himself to be ultimate meaning. So that if things to us that carry ultimate meaning, lesser gods get taken away, we're still satisfied. We're still full. We're not freaking out after an election or after our team loses. Now, I can remember as a kid driving home after the Miami Dolphins lost to the Seattle Seahawks in a playoff game that was supposed to be an easy one-off, then get to the Oakland Raiders next. This is the, I was a teenager. My friend drove us. I don't think I was old enough to drive. He was, and we were so depressed. He just, we just got in the car and drove and drove and drove in, in, in depressed silence. It's driving. didn't say a word to each other until my friend says, I have no idea where we are right now. <laughs> we got lost. It took us so long to get home because we had to go all the way down to Miami for the game. We lived a little bit more in the Fort Lauderdale area. The point is that had ultimate meaning for me. It's like the dolphins are losing. I mean, this can't be. It was really important. I still enjoy it, but it, it, it carries a different level of meaning. We find ultimate meaning sometimes in the strangest things and sometimes in things that the world deems as having ultimate meaning. And Jesus says a flat no to every single one of those issues and just presents himself. You'll find it all in me, all of it. And when we pursue that and find it in different measures as we grow, we're worshipers in spirit and in truth. The end, but I have time left to go, so I'm going to keep talking. It's not really the end. Jesus answered and says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love the way he redirects her during her little beginning of worship. He says, you're asking the wrong question. What's of ultimate meaning to you does not carry ultimate meaning. National identity, social taboo, these particular religious boundaries, those do not carry divine meaning. You're asking the wrong question. Reorient your question. Ask me for a, for a drink. I've asked you, now you ask me. Sometimes it's a good way to start worship. Lord, I pray, just give me a drink. I need you. It doesn't have to be complicated. It just has to be rightly directed. Come on. She said, to her, she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? There's a little bit of sass involved here, a little bit of sarcasm. Where then do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob. See, ultimate meaning, religious symbols. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, look, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Worship, the worship of the Father in Jesus' name not only satisfies, but immediately triggers something from deep inside of us to be of eternal value to others around us. Jesus says, if you quench your thirst on the water I give, 
You will no longer be thirsty and you will be productive. You will not just be a consumer, you will be a producer of spirit life for other people, which is exactly what he turned this lady in. In short order, this conversation, assuming there were a few other words involved, could not, I imagine, take more than an hour. It's way shorter if we just read it straight. And he turns this lady completely around from someone whose heart was spread thin to someone satisfied with Jesus, and she brings her entire city to the Lord by herself. That's the power of one satisfied soul. You cannot fake authentic worship, and you cannot fake the satisfaction that it yields. You either have it or you don't. We can fake our faces, but we can't fake countenance. Countenance comes from within. You can't fake that. You can make yourself look good, we all do it. We all try to do it up to a point. But you can't fake countenance. Countenance, the face beams, the face, faces are radiant from the inside after looking at the Lord. There, there's, there's power in a satisfied life. There's testimony. So Jesus says, I'll do that for you. You'll be satisfied and your life will have meaning for eternity in my kingdom because of the impact and more importantly, the fruit that you will bear during life on earth. The woman says to him, give me this water so I won't be thirsty nor have to come all the way here to draw. So there's a combination here of authentic pursuit. She's intrigued by this young man who's burst through, I mean, he's completely unusual. He's burst through all these social barriers. And now he's talking in words that seem highfalutin spiritual talk. So she's intrigued, but she's also still a little bit sarcastic about it. Well, give me some of this water so I don't have to come all the way here to draw. Of course, you've probably heard it taught, this story taught about how she's there in the middle of the day because she doesn't have the best reputation, so she doesn't come during the cooler parts of the day to get water because this way she can avoid interaction with the other women or other men, whatever the case may be. And so this is a part of her complaint that she has to come in the heat of the day because of her condition. So well, if you give me some of this water, then I don't have to bear this burden just to get my water. And he says to her, go call your husband and come here. <laughs> well, where does that come from? Give me some of this water so I don't have to come all the way here and draw water. And he says, go get your husband. <laughs> you ever notice how Jesus doesn't always say quite what seems to be fitting in the exact moment? It's like, I was asking you for a way to access living water, not asking for an interview about my private life. But what she doesn't realize is when she asked for physical water, Jesus interpreted it as asking for spiritual water, and he answered the question. Or he began to. Oh, you want water? Go get your husband. Because she asked for water, so really what he's doing is giving it to her in this moment. Go get your husband. Tell him to come here. The woman answers and says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. You've said correctly, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you're with now is not your husband. You've said this truly. She's like, you're a prophet. How'd you know those details? And he said, 
This is my paraphrase. You asked for water, so I'm giving you a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, because that's the water, life in the Spirit. It's brilliant, because she asks for water, so he prophesies. <laughs> that's the water. It's the presence of the Spirit breaking into real life. So there's part of her answer. He took her seriously. But not only that, he simultaneously identified where her heart was yearning for satisfaction in men. You are presently quenching the thirst of your heart in these illicit relationships. But I'm giving you an alternative. A relationship with the king sent from God and life in the spirit. That is satisfaction. And Jesus in a minute says, and that is worship in spirit and in truth. It's brilliant. He identifies the areas of her heart where she's finding satisfaction in sin and then gives her the alternative right in her face in the, the same packaged effort. It's extraordinary. How many people know that we need the Holy Spirit to worship truly? And I am sad at how many worship services I've been in where there wasn't the faintest need for the Holy Spirit's revelation of Jesus, inspiration, movement for the gifts, because all the visual and audible stimuli replaced it. You don't need to be satisfied with God here. Let us entertain you. Or let us sub out your pursuit for satisfaction in God. We'll fill in the gaps. We don't want to feel awkward. How many times have I been saddened by my own efforts to worship God in my own flesh? Whereas true worship is to seek God for that deep connection and say, you satisfy me. To drink deeply and to come up with a word of worship and say, that's good. Lord, you're good. You satisfy my soul. Let's ask ourselves in the light of the Holy Spirit, okay? I'm not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. I'm one of, we're all together in here. Jesus is the Lord. The Lord in this text, he's the Lord among us. What is he pointing out in our hearts? Go call your husband. Here's where you're finding satisfaction as an alternative to me. What's he saying? What, what are our hearts saying or being exposed as in the light of the presence of the one who's just reality, he's real? You can't get more real than this. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Good job. You've had five, and the man you're with now is not your husband. You've said that truly. It's like, he just breaks right through the social barriers. Give me a drink. I'll, I'm recasting ultimate reality for you with one simple phrase. Then I prophesy. You know something else is going on here. This little lady, this Samaritan, discarded socially by her town, is being met by the Lord of the universe on appointment. I'm not looking, Jesus is saying, I'm not looking for the elite. I'm not looking for the doctors of theology. I'm looking for humble hearts who are willing to come out and be satisfied in God more than anything else. He had an appointment with her. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Socially, there is zero significance to this woman and Jesus cho chose her and had a one-on-one -on -one interview with her and prophesied to her so that she could taste the reality of God and see how she would respond. And she responded well. <clears throat> we live in a culture that has a lot of resources and a lot of ways to satisfy the heart. 
We have immediate access. We could pull right out of our pocket a device that allows us to soar into other places and to keep us, and to keep the younger generation oftentimes especially, whoa, oh no, sorry, I misread that clock. My wife tells me never draw attention to the clock and I do it every time emphatically. You can go from one thing to the other, whatever it is, whether it's whatever kind of drug it is, whether it's visual, whether it's, it's a literal drug, we can, we can go to the next thing as soon as we dip off that, that heart level satisfaction. We can find something else. It's a dangerous place to be. It's, it's, it's the devil's ploy to keep us from being true worshipers. And we do the same thing in church. We keep it a certain amount of time. We have to have a certain amount of stimuli and guidance or the people won't worship. They're untrained and flat because they're not equipped to seek God and find him. And not only have we allowed for that, we've accommodated it and encouraged it. In our culture, what I described was available in the world has come right into our, our church culture. And it makes us ineffective so that we're reduced only to having impact with our message, but not fruit. Fruit is born through satisfied people. And satisfied people are satisfied through worship in spirit and in truth. So may the Lord search my heart and identify where my heart is finding satisfaction in things in contrast to Jesus himself. So she perceives he's a prophet. A few more things here, quickly. In verse 19 and verse 20, she, she then, after declaring that he's a prophet, because now you can't deny this, right? Jesus is pretty bold. He's very wise in the way he approaches her. But once he shows the spirit, she says, okay, she says two words. Number one, prophet. Number two, worship. Because we Samaritans, we have our own book. We have our own mountain we worship on. We don't share the same religion with the Jews. We have a little bit of it, but we got our own thing going on. But you're a Jew and you just demonstrated the spirit. So something's, something's different with you. So I'm confused. How can you be a Jew and have the spirit while we Samaritans are, we have our own religion? Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. You guys say that it's in Jerusalem. That's where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you don't know. Just a little commercial there. The Samaritans are wrong. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. However, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? It means to worship in the Holy Spirit. How do I do that? Do I have to be super spiritual? Do I have to come up with these prophetic revelations about people the way Jesus did? Is that what Gladstone's telling me? No, the first thing is let your spirit be geared toward Jesus Christ to find satisfaction in him. Your love for me, your answer, your word to me, your peace in the storm, that's what settles my heart. That's all I want. 
And I come in today, I've got really basically no problems. The Bible, I don't have any major th issues I'm dealing with. My heart is happy. What, what's, what's up with Gladstone? Hey, no problem, because the Bible says, is anyone cheerful? Let them sing praises. Everything's going good. You know where to find satisfaction. God, it's good because you're blessing. You're giving favor. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's like a win, 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 win proposition. Whether we're on this side or that side of the emotional spectrum, God is our satisfaction. And when we're just seeking that satisfaction in him, it's called worshiping in spirit. And then the spirit will activate in an environment like that. You'll get more gifts coming out when there's authentic pursuit. And the truth, of course, is centered on Jesus, that he is God's son, the gospel message, and everything that goes with that. That's the truth. You can't worship off um, with some weird doctrines floating around in our hearts, but you can't just have the truth part right either. And we have all the truth, and then the whole congregation is dead. It has to be spirit and truth. Let the Lord search our hearts today. Where are our hearts spreading and, and, and scattering to find satisfaction elsewhere? Because wherever it is, it's, Jesus is addressing you today. But it's not to condemn. You see the way he handled this little lady? Actually commended the way she made confession? She is living in a moral life and Jesus has zero compromise in the way he addresses her. But he was still very gentle and protective. Why? Because she was humble and she was pursuing Jesus in her own way. So the, the sin is intolerable. She repents of the sin. That's what's implied in the passage. You can't be humble and be sinning at the same time anyway. That's a contradiction. But the point is that Jesus did not condemn her and he's not condemning us. He's saying, you do well to be honest with me. Now let me give you the alternative that comes from my father's throne. So this morning I believe that's what God is saying. And then he says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Man, I want this in my life. I want to worship in spirit and in truth. And I don't want to do it in a way, you know, I'm up here, I'm a speaker, I'm telling you, I want to do this and I'm, I'm being honest. But there's a certain energy that comes in presenting a message. I want to be this, like this Samaritan woman who finds satisfaction in Jesus when I'm all alone and things aren't going well. It's just my life. It's the entire vibe of the way I operate. I abide, that's an unintended rhyme. I abide in Jesus Christ, it's just who I am, it's what I do. It's a secret delight going on in my heart. And it's something God hears about when I'm in the secret place. And then I come with other people like me and we worship together in spirit and in truth. That's where I believe God is taking us. There may be sins hindering us. There may be little, little idols hindering us because we're finding satisfaction elsewhere. C.S. Lewis said, our, our sin is not that we seek pleasure. Our sin is that we're too easily pleased. May we find our pleasures ultimately in God himself. So the, 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 the disciples come. They can't believe that he's talking with the woman. I will have to summarize here. Um, well, I, I, have to, I have to show this one more verse. I'm sorry. Uh, verse 25, the woman says, I know Messiah is coming. He'll declare everything to us. Jesus says in verse 26, I'm he. There's your truth. I'm the one. This is awesome. There's one woman there. And he's presenting himself in a clearer way than he does to the crowds, where he would often keep that a secret. He very rarely says, I'm the Messiah. When the demons speak it out, it's like, shh, 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 shh. 
they don't understand what that term means. You can't publicize that right now. And here he's like, I'm he. How precious is this woman? How significant? How effective at evangelism because she's satisfied. She goes, takes her whole town to Jesus. Man, that's us if we enter in. Come on. The disciples come. They see that she's, he's speaking with a woman. Verse 28, the woman leaves her water pot and goes into the city. And she says to the men, come see a man. He told me everything I've done. This has to be the Messiah. She leaves the water pot. So that's symbolic. She's no longer satisfied with the old water. She's, she's drunk of the Holy Spirit from Jesus, and she immediately goes to tell other people about it. It's amazing. And they come. The story goes on to say that they come, and then they spend time with Jesus, and they say, we no longer need your testimony. We know for ourselves he's the Son of God, right? That's how authentic her testimony is. It's so powerful, it's enough to get them to Jesus, and then she doesn't have to continue to be like the crutch. Now they have their own relationship to Jesus. That's how powerful her, her testimony is. She's satisfied. She doesn't need people following her. They can follow Jesus on their own, right? We, we really need one another. I mean, that's one, one of my fundamental truths in life. I plant churches. It's all about community and needing one another. We can't do it without one another, but but not in the same way we can't do it without God. When we develop unhealthy dependencies on one another, it's filling a place in our hearts that is reserved for God alone. We shouldn't need leaders to conduct everything about our spiritual lives. They should equip us that we could do it on our own. And if I, as a leader, am satisfied with Jesus, I don't need you or anyone else that I'm helping to pastor or teach. I don't need them to depend on me. I don't need that for my ego because Jesus has satisfied me. And it's the same thing for us. When we give testimony because we're satisfied, we can disciple people, but they will develop their own relationship with Jesus. It's so powerful. The relationship between worshiping in spirit and truth and mission and evangelism. <clears throat> so Abba, Father, we have, uh, we've considered your word together this morning, a call to worship in spirit and in truth. And we thank you that you have targeted us to, to consider this today. I know that in my own soul, this was challenging to me even sitting here this morning during worship, that you were, you were bringing conviction and challenge to my heart to be satisfied with you ultimately. And so as we consider this word and this challenge, we pray that you will have mercy on us and that you will give us courage as we humble ourselves before you. Father, I'm asking for people who've come under the Spirit's precious, gracious conviction, where things are coming up and you are calling us, perhaps even to give our lives to you for the first time, or to hand over things as disciples that have at times been double-minded or divided, we pray as we humble ourselves before you that you will let this conviction turn into a burst of energy and delight by the Spirit in our hearts. That we would not merely think of what we're turning away from, but the one to whom we are turning, may he dominate our landscape and the landscape of our emotional 
and, and, and physical and mental capacities, Lord, just dominate our horizon. With the brightness of your goodness, draw us to yourself. Father, I pray for these people that you will grant them to be those whom you seek. Jesus said it is the Father who seeks those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Not often do we hear about what the Father seeks. Father, may we be the kind of people you're seeking. Oh my goodness, may we be the kind of people that you seek who worship in spirit and in truth, who seek to be satisfied with you and you alone. Father, grant us courage to, to be like the Samaritan woman and find all of our springs in you. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.